welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what's going on? Not so much, Steve. Um, I am looking forward to the show today. We are going to talk about Operation Varsity Blues, which is the new Netflix um, documentary, like quasi-documentary, quasi-lifetime-esque reenactment film um, about the college admissions fraud cheating scandal that happened a few years ago. Yes, I'm excited about this because living in the college-university world and having some experience on this, this is a this will be an interesting conversation. I hope we haven't had it yet, so hopefully it is. But before we dive into that, just a reminder to our listeners that instead of sponsors, instead of throwing out you know random supplements that sound good, but let's be honest, probably don't work to you guys. What we're doing is we are our own sponsors in the sense that we have created a Patreon account where you guys can come out, support us, and get all sorts of cool, exclusive things. First off, you get access to the podcast a week earlier than we release it publicly. So if you can't wait to hit listen to Brad and I every week, you know, you might as well get on the Patreon. But we also have all sorts of Cool exclusives like uh, a book club where we have best-selling authors come in. Uh, you get to ask whatever question you want on their latest book. We've got Judd Brewer, Maria Konnikova, a lot of other great, insightful authors. So if that sounds interesting, check it out. You can do. You can find the link in the show notes or patreon.com slash the growth equation. We're also going to be, um, this week, putting out exclusive Patreon-only podcasts, and um, there's a quarterly live mastermind group for the kind of elite level of uh, Patreon member where we'll meet to discuss mastery uh, quarterly with a really good community of folks that take this stuff seriously and like to geek out. So as Steve said, we appreciate you guys supporting us. Um, if you are not in a position to support us on Patreon, uh, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That also goes a long way just to help other people discover the show. So with, with that out of the way, um, the movie. So Steve, here's a good diving in point for me. So first off, I thought the film was great and I highly recommend it to everyone. It was more entertaining than deep. So what I hope we can do today is ask some of the questions and have some of the discussions that I wish that they would have had in the film. So as I said uh, just a minute or two ago, it it wasn't really a full-fledged documentary. Like the the it was it, when I say lifetime reenactments for younger listeners that didn't grow up with like the lifetime, you know, life of an emergency room doctor or the murder case of so and so where they have actors play the actual people for a lot of the film. So I was kind of like watching a movie, but also a documentary. Um, so yeah, I, I felt like they could have done a job, better job asking some of the, the more deep questions, such as like, why did these parents feel the need to do this that already have everything? Why did the coaches feel the need to take these bribes? Um, 
So I hope that we can do that on today's show. Ask, ask and discuss some of those questions. Before we dive into that, just in case you are totally um, naive to this topic, what was it? Two years ago in 2018, so almost like two and a half years ago now, um, their word broke of an enormous scandal that had been running since 2011, where very wealthy individuals were going through a middleman named Rick Singer, who was a quote unquote life coach and college consultant. And they were paying him tons of money to bribe coaches to get their kids into school. So Rick Singer talked about there's the front door, which is you're qualified to get into school. There's the back door, which is you give a $100 million donation to the endowment. And there's the side door, which is you give an athletic program a 500000 to, let's say, $10 million donation. You literally Photoshop pictures of your kid that never played that sport playing the sport, and you somehow get them a, co- a, a scholarship. And the coaches are in on it. The ADs claim not to be in on it, but man, they all certainly seem like they're in on it. Um, and obviously the parents are in on it. And the last thing I'll say before I shut up on context is what hurt me the most is a lot of times the kids weren't in on it. So the kids had no idea. Oh, and it's bizarre. There was also like this guy that was taking the ACT for kids and some of these kids had no idea. So um, yeah, that's the context. Oh, man, there are so many jumping off points here. And I I hope for listeners, this conversation, A, it jumps into some of the... um, some of the ideas that we hold maybe wrongly on, on college and universities, and we'll dive into that a little bit. But we also want to give, you know, I'm going to give my experience behind the scenes on the athletic side and looking at admission on, on, that, on that side. But, you know, one of the things that, that struck me there is you're, you're listing off the context, Brad, is you have, okay, you have the, the front door, right, which is the one we all assume. You take your SAT, you do well on you know your grades you apply do your admission and you get in or you get rejected and then you have the the back door which is pay hundreds of millions for endowment why is that acceptable yeah well i think the first thing that you're missing on the front door is the even why is the front door acceptable so you said you do well in your act in school but you also have to have served in the peace courts um created a cure for malaria, um, not done the model UN, but actually spoken and read poetry in front of the actual UN, like the credentials that it takes to get into some of these quote unquote elite colleges is just absolutely off the rails. And I was reading that um, elite colleges, they have more capacity. They very purposefully keep their admissions numbers low to create exclusivity. So before we even get to the endowment, the, the front door is broken. Like they could grease that thing up a little bit and let a lot more people through. All right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Let's let's start there because um, it's interesting because they they they're selling prestige. Right. And in order to keep that prestige, like you've got to artificially keep things, you know, constrained. Right. Because it's it's the only reason why you know universities are seemingly inelastic and can just increase their price you know forever 
and people will keep paying because of the amount of prestige. So, you know, maybe a good point for this is is diving into a little bit of our own personal story or I'll tell my personal story. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I was going to say you have like the experience of being in one of these elite private schools and then switching over to the down and dirty public school where I only know the down and dirty public school. Um, and, and, and this is our bias. And I know that we have listeners that have attended Ivy League schools. And um, if we if we offend you, we apologize. We will probably speak in generalities that um, are just that. They're generalities. They don't speak for everyone. And I know a lot of fine people that came from Ivy League schools. And Ivy League schools often make me want to vomit. <laughs> it's it's the uh, both and. Um, so, so I'll set the stage because I think, you know, my story brings up some of these, um, some of these questions that maybe we can get at for a little bit. So coming out of college or coming out of high school, excuse me, uh, for those who don't know, I was the number one miler in the country, um, at that point. So recruiting wise, I got recruited by every, everybody essentially. Um, but the the interesting thing is my grades and SAT scores were good enough. They weren't outstanding. Um, if I remember correctly, my SAT score, you know, back in the early 2000s was right around 1300. I was, you know, maybe top six, seven percent. And in, in my school, I really didn't care about academics whatsoever. But I fit in this interesting category where I was really good at athletics, but then smart enough that I got recruited by all the Ivies or elite, we'll call them schools in in the country. I mean, I took visits to Ivy leagues. I talked, you know, to coaches and admissions and the Harvards of the world and stuff like that, even though, you know, from a pure academic standpoint, I had no business doing so, but I could get into those. And then I ended up going not to Ivy League, but a elite private, you know, university. Um, and it was also an interesting experience because I didn't fill out the normal application. Um, because the way it tends to work, again, we're, we're speaking in generalities here, is you can't just get any athlete into a prestigious, you know, school. But if they're close enough you have most of the time what happens is you have these uh, these kind of spots and each school has a certain number of spots for for their program where they can get exceptions on the the uh, normal admission route or normal admission standards based on their athletic prowess so it's it's really easy it's really interesting if we just stop there in the sense you could ask the question is that right is that wrong? Is that a different door, the athletic door um, that obviously was exposed in here? And it's just, uh, you know, something to ponder. Yeah. And, and people don't, um, people don't know this about me, but I almost snuck in the athletic door to wash you in St. Louis uh, for football. And I was not smart enough to go to wash you in St. Louis, but same thing. I filled out this weird application. I met with the coach and it's, um, they weren't going to offer me a scholarship or anything, but I was going to be what they, and I'd still pay tuition basically, but I was going to be like an academic let through to play football. Um, 
and I even want, and I, and I don't just want this to be a rant. I want to provide some analysis, but I even want to step back before that because what I'm thinking when you say that is, well, I'd be really curious to see like the SAT or the ACT scores of the athletes on like a D1 program, whether it's, you know, football or basketball or something like that at a very good school. And then I catch myself. I wrote down this note when you were talking, Steve. So in Michigan, the main test is the ACT. Well, at least that's the story that my parents told me because I did terrible on the SAT. So I was told that the main test is the ACT. And I'm not a good test taker. So I took the ACT and I got between 24 and 25, um, twice. And then I took a Kaplan class and I got a tutor. And that probably cost, I don't know, between two and $6,000. And my ACT score went up to 29. So the first thing that I say is for anyone that says that the ACT like measures raw intelligence, that is not true. The ACT measures how good at taking the ACT you are. And my own story is proof. Nothing changed. I didn't have a lobotomy or like, you know, do brain doping between the four months before I had the Kaplan course in the tutor and after I just learned how to take the test. And the only reason I learned how to take the test is because I had parents that felt it was important for me to get into a good school and had the financial resources to take the test. So the whole thing is broken. And this is the both ends. So I ended up going to University of Michigan. It's probably half my bias of Ivy League schools is a little bit of like an inferiority complex. Although in Michigan, we say that um, Harvard is the Michigan of the East Coast. So I went to a big public state school and I learned a ton. And I'm so thankful for what I learned at University of Michigan. Yet the path to get into the University of Michigan was kind of BS in the sense that I only got in because I had this Kaplan test tutor and BS because I'm lucky I was in state. I don't know. I probably paid like six to $8,000 at the time, but kids coming from New York were paying like 50 K and Michigan was taking kids from New York instead of in-state kids who were more qualified because the kids from New York would pay 50 K. So in, in then, Oh man, this is turning into a rant. And then the bullshit about we're not going to pay the players in college sports. Are you kidding me? The whole thing is a business. <laughs> All right. Well, there's there's so many different ways we can go on this. But I think, you know, I, I think you brought up a good point there on the test taking there. And it's something that I've thought about uh, a lot, too, because, you know, unlike you, Brad, like I took I rolled up to the SAT, didn't study or whatever, um, because I knew I had. I was a really good runner in my back pocket. It's you kind know? of how you write our newsletters that I edit. You just roll up to the newsletter. You don't think about it. You just pound it out. You don't check your answers. And then you hand it off to me. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, it's maybe that's uh, it, it goes back all all the way to high school. And that's also, unfortunately, how I handled school. But anyways, um, enough about me. But, you know, I, I sit here and I think and it's easy to react. And you sometimes have this reaction of like, especially from an athletic standpoint, like, oh, that's not fair, what have you. But um, in some ways, I wonder, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, if you have a really good runner, a really good football or basketball player, and he's not quite up to standard, but he's close enough. But then you add in, well, he's devoted all his time to mastering basketball, and he's still pretty good. Then 
might an exception be like warranted in a lot of cases because it's just the way it is like he or she is from the hood so like they're not coming from money they're not in a culture where you're going to do the kaplan test prep right it's i mean it's no different than in recruiting in the sense that if i'm looking for a good athlete if i look at uh, a runner coming from let's say the number one team high school team in the nation who has great coaches trains all the time versus someone who ran a little bit slower but you know, came from the middle of nowhere, Texas, and had a football coach for their track coach, then I'm thinking like, well, this person's not quite, he might not have the the standard I want, but man, they're probably, they're not, you know, trained. They've probably got a lot of talent and room for growth. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in, 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 in this gets now to a conversation on college athletics a little bit, but I think that there's another thing, which is like, are you really giving, are you really having these kids come there to challenge their brains and get the best education? And you can say that all you want, but if you're playing a sport, you're going to be too tired to get a good education. Like I remember that, um, with Wash U there was, I probably would have played because the the team's pretty lousy. It's like D2 or D3. So there I might've played some football, but also Northwestern was, was considering giving me like a walk-on spot. And I just remember seeing like the practice schedule, realizing that for me, that would mean like scout team getting just beat the crap out of by the starters, maybe working my ass off for four years to play on special teams at two-a-day practice. Like when am I going to have time or energy to do schoolwork? Yeah, you know, it's uh it's kind of backwards. And in that sense, that's why I'm glad that uh running is the way it is. And don't get me wrong, it makes you tired, exhausted, but there's only so many hours a day you can run because you're you're pounding, you know. So so it saves you there. I mean, from a, a physical exhaustion standpoint, yeah, it's probably pretty bad, but from a time standpoint, at least you can balance that out. But it is an interesting thing when you look at what is, it kind of brings us to this greater point of what is the point of college? You know, is it is it to learn and grow? Is it to get this certificate and pass on? Is it to produce athletes? And I think I think what we're kind of getting at is it's 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 almost this business it, well, it is this business in many regards, but we kind of uh don't treat it as such in other regards which is just kind of mind-blowing to me yeah i mean i think it's to learn and grow i don't think the certificate holds any clout so like the kind of work that we do i don't know i call it like intellectual work right like we think we write books once somebody called us thought leaders and i was like (laughs) never gonna live that one down um no but if if i mean you tell me if this is, again, I'm going to offend some people and I probably shouldn't say this, but like, let's say that we were expanding and we were hiring like a, a an all-arounder, I would be biased towards public schools. But again, like that's my own bias. I went to a public school, but like I don't count the certificate for anything. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I would be with you, but you know, I, I'm biased too um, in that same regard, even though I went, for those who don't know, I went to private school for first two years and then transferred to public school and graduated from public schools for every other degree. Um, so I, I'm biased in, the, in that sense, in that regard, too. But I think there's some areas or some jobs where people would argue that it's um, it, it does matter, which is kind of. But those are the jobs. Degree. OK, this is fun. So the, so yeah. so these are the jobs where 
like you want to be a senator. It's probably helpful to like have a Harvard or Yale or Dartmouth or whatever Brown degree. You want to be like a partner at the most prestigious law firm. Might be helpful, probably helpful to have one of those degrees. But who are the people in this scandal that are so broken that they're paying for their kids to go inside doors? It's a bunch of like senator level partners at fancy law firms. So again, I know I'm going to offend our Ivy League listeners. I'm going to stop like saying that to hedge my bets, but I can't help but think like, do you just get into like this warped world that is so devoid of reality where like that becomes the normal and this brand and this prestige and this sense of prestige and needing your kids to have that same sense of prestige, the education is no better. I have zero reason to believe that the education is better in an Ivy League school than a state school. I have minimal reason to believe that the education at University of Michigan is better than Michigan State. I think that if a kid wants to go to school and learn and take it seriously, they're going to learn at most colleges, community colleges. You, you know, I think you're spot on there. And having been to way too many colleges, that was my experience, <laughs> is that the education, um, a lot of times, you know, as it would be expected, depended on what kind of teacher or professor you got. And that wasn't, there wasn't any difference between even, I had some brilliant community college teachers who were really great at teaching. Community you know? college professors, I, I have an inside track here because I know someone that will probably do it. Um, and, I, and, and I know someone else that does do it. They tend to be the best people straight up. I'll tell you why, because it's super hard to get like tenure track professorships at big schools in desirable areas. So if you want to live somewhere, if it's like a cool area, then you become a community college professor and you don't have to do research. So you can like teach and read all day. I mean, if I was a professor, I would totally do community college. I've even thought about UNC Asheville, like as I get older, like maybe trying to lecture there. Um, so it, yeah, I, and again, I went to freaking University of Michigan. So I, I'm, I'm putting my own skin in the game and being like, I'm sure I would have been just fine if I went to some other school. Now, would I have gotten a job at McKinsey? No, but I don't think that that's right. I think that we care too much about brands. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And actually, there was some research done uh, quite recently that compared, I think it was a couple dozen colleges in terms of um, they took a sampling of classes and taped them and all that stuff and had experts judge them based on rigor and um, teaching quality. And, and back, were- back to my rant, because I mentioned McKinsey, it made me think of this in public schools with... Um, at McKinsey, where I was probably like in my class of 20 that were hired my year, one of two public school kids, maybe the only one, I was always, whenever there was a project where we were working with like middle managers, I was always the person to work with them. And it was literally, partners were like, oh, like you can talk to these people because like you can shoot the shit about like eating wings at B-dubs while watching sports but these other 19 from Ivy League schools, like they have no idea how to relate to these people. Man, you're really going in on the Ivy Leagues. But it, as I said, the research bears it out. There's no teaching difference between and in terms of quality between the different things. And a lot of that is, too, I think it's incentives, right? The larger university or the more prestigious you get is those professors are a lot of times come there for the research. 
or for right. the prestige, for the brand yeah. to say that you're a Harvard professor. Yeah. Or yeah, exactly. It's not it's not the incentive isn't like, oh, I'm going to go teach all these kids. Now, for some of them, it is. Obviously, we're talking in broad generalities here, but the incentive isn't isn't the teaching. So the quality of teaching across the board is, I would say, hit or miss, you know. And maybe that, maybe this is how I save myself going against the Ivies. Maybe that is the distinction where there is no doubt some population, and I'm sure it's all of our listeners that went to Ivies that are in this half, who want to pursue a rich, rigorous, intellectual life, have dreamed of reading in big ivory towers and walking through forest doing deep thought and working out mathematical proofs with the other brightest minds in the world. And those people that go to Ivy League schools, they probably are in the right place. There's another group of people that go to Ivy League schools that want the prestige, that are going there because their parents or grandparents went there because they want to run for Senate and they somehow know this at age 17, that they feel like they have to be partner at the big law firm, that their parents feel that way. And that half should not be at the Ivy League school. And that half is what makes me so frustrated with it. And the scary part is, is that, and what this movie documentary, quasi-documentary showed is like that half might actually be 75%. Like it might be the minority of folks at Ivy League schools that are there for like the deep rigor and to try to, to, you know, to try to meet and and meld with minds. But I do want to step back because like, I don't know, I have a cousin that's a MIT mathematician And he speaks a different language, literally. Like there are only 12 other people in the world that he can talk to about math. So of course it makes sense that they all go to MIT. So that's not my gripe. My gripe is the, I need that brand so I can make partner at this big law firm. So then I can buy the big house and then send my kids to the Ivy League schools. um, So I can feel good about myself. Yep, exactly. And you know, it's it's interesting because it's a very... I don't know. It's a very American problem with the prestige as well. Um, if you look at Canada, for example, their highest or their best ranking university, um, which is ranked in the top 20 in the world, I believe, University of Toronto, their undergraduate like size is something like 65 to 70,000 people, right? So they have this really good university ranked wise, whatever prestige. And they've expanded it so that like people can go there. And in our world, we restrict it to keep the prestige high on these things, which is very fascinating. But anyways, let's let's dive into, you know, a little of what the documentary brought up in terms of the uh, prestige and almost the, you know, the willingness to risk so much for these people who already have so much that's like an interesting psychological phenomenon yeah so i would argue that it is um just like never enough syndrome so you never like you can't realize that you have so much because you always want more and i think that that view gets compounded by the fact that many of the families engaged in this scandal run in circles where it is a keeping up with the Joneses. And if the Joneses in your neighborhood is all $50 million houses and their kids are all going to Harvard, then you better have a $51 million house and you better go to Harvard. There's research that shows that for happiness 
it is better to live in a third world country where all your neighbors are also third world than to be middle class in America, but live in a super rich neighborhood because it's all about reference point. So once your very basic needs are met, food, water, not even healthcare in this study. So really like food, water, shelter, then it's better to live with other people that have minimum things than to have more, but live with people that have even more than you. That's interesting. That's fascinating. So it's, it's the comparison point and where you set that set point and what we're kind of getting at is that. And then there's that, other research, all this stuff's in my forthcoming book that doesn't come out till September, but there's other research in, in, that I, that I've used in this book that shows that inequality makes everyone less happy, including the rich people. So like it's, it's just backwards in all different directions because then they feel like they need to be superior or they need to maintain that wealth. And when we put such a premium on wealth, you're never rich enough unless you're Jeff Bezos. And then even when you're Jeff Bezos, he's probably insecure about, is he not giving enough money to charity because all these other wealthy people give all this money to charity? Insecurity. Yeah, that's probably that, that. Yeah, that's a good summary of my answer. I mean, that's that's the basis of it, right? But it's just it's just so wild if if you step back and think about it. Um, and the the funny thing is, if you watch this, you know, quasi documentary, as you pointed out, it's very seldom the kid who is driving this ship. It wasn't in any of these cases. Half the time, the kid's like, "Mom, I don't even play water polo," and they're like, "Well." You know, we had this genetic testing done on you, and we think you'll make a fine water polo player at Harvard. <laughs> but but that's that's the the wild thing is it's the parents and securities that are driving like doing this to send their kids to like these prestigious universities. And when their kid gets there, I guarantee you, all they're going to do is not guarantee, but it's most likely they're just gonna you know fall into into line and not not really care and do their party thing and get through it and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, and for those that didn't see the movie, there's this one part that Steve was texting me about as we were watching, um, cause watching separately, obviously that there was one team where they wanted to get the person on the rowing team, but the person had never rowed. So they bought an erg for their home, an indoor rowing machine, had the kid sit on the indoor rowing machine, did a photo shoot and then photoshopped him onto boats outdoors with his high school team. And that's why everyone's in on it. I mean, clearly the coach is then getting bribed, but the AD, like, I mean, if they're not in on it, then I don't, then they're just stupid. So, so let's talk about that a little bit, because I think this is interesting coming from, you know, my experience as a college coach. Let, let's break down why this is idiotic and then also why why they're able to do it. And that this means like the basically faking that the kids are athletes, giving an enormous donation to the sports program, and then having the coach give the kids uh, one of the spots that, like you said, it's not scholarship, but it's like an academic walk-on where the standards are lowered a little bit. Right, exactly. So one of the walk-on spots that allows them to to kind of get in. Um, a, I just my mind was blown on the sports selected for this thing. I guess it depends on the the coach and who they could bribe. But you're you're taught like in my head, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, 
man, if you were just like a cross country runner and spent like six months training your kid, like, no, they wouldn't be good, but they'd probably get a walk on spot at one of these schools, especially, you know, if they're female. The only reason I say female is Title IX. A lot of times numbers in females get boosted in sports like cross country uh, to make up for male football, etc. But it's just it's just kind of mind blowing. But anyways, to to kind of step back there, I think there's a couple things. Wait, real quick, what you're saying on the numbers get boosted, because I I think I understand this, but I want to make sure listeners do. So Title IX says you have to have equal women's sports and men's sports. So a men's football team might have 70 athletes. So the women's cross country team might have like 60 runners, even if only five are scoring. Yep. So uh, to expand on that, uh, most D1 football teams actually have 100 or so football athletes. And what happens is one of the ways you satisfy Title IX is you have to have this equal opportunity, which means equal number proportionally, um, depending on what you're looking at. But anyways, the bottom line is because there's no female football, you have to make that up essentially. So you have like enormous size cross country teams. So instead of having to run a 16 flat, you can run a 24. And my wife, Caitlin, could walk onto the team at any of these schools. it, yeah, exactly. Because cross country, again, why why do they choose that sport? Because it's low cost. It's easy to have big numbers, right? So Why didn't they just all run? I'll tell you why they didn't all cross country. Because then this Rick Singer guy, the middleman, who was like the broker between the wealthy families and the schools, wouldn't have been able to make dough. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that's it. They could have just... Although, this, to be fair, the sports were pretty obscure. Rowing made no sense. Of course, that person's going to get caught. Because rowing is a pretty, like, cared about sport in those types of schools. But water polo, I don't think too many people are paying attention. Sailing, probably not. Um, I mean, sailing, it's like, just throw the kid in, like, the belly of the boat. (laughs) (laughs) So it is interesting. But let's look at the other side of this, which is um, the, like, why would the coaches take take that bribe, that money? You know, and I think it was you could break this down into two things, right? Is one, some of the coaches, I think um, the sailing one in particular, had the money donated to the university, right? And it wasn't wasn't to him. And then others of the coaches like took the money themselves, which the take themselves, I guess it makes sense in the sense that, you know. And the coaches as portrayed in the movie were black, white, male, female. So this is everyone was offending. It seems everybody. And it's it's interesting. And even they implicate implicated at least one AD in there, which is even, I don't know, another step up there. And I think it just comes back to something that you brought up earlier, Brad, which is, you know, it's the business professionalization of of college sport. Or, like, at least in that area, it shows that it is. Right, they're they're probably not even thinking, like, they're doing anything that drastically wrong, because to them, college isn't about the best candidates for academics getting in. It's about the most money for their sports. Right. And if you look at college sport, how is it largely funded to a degree? It's alumni donation. So I'm guessing that they're probably rationalizing this in some similar way that, 
you know, they get their couple million for naming the scoreboard of the basketball arena. And man, it, I just feel this so strongly. We could talk about like our super rich people living in a bizarro world. Are they all evil? Are these coaches evil? But the underlying thought that keeps on coming back to my mind is just pay the freaking players. It's so like, cause everything points towards this being a business. And we talked about this offline, Steve, I was hiking and I gave you a call because I just watched the movie and I was screaming, pay the freaking players. Um, and you mentioned that the reason that they don't pay the players is because if they paid the players, instead of giving money to the programs, you thought that boosters would give money to the players directly. And then the, 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 the program would lose their control over the players. So how this would work out is let's say that a college athlete could use um, their likeness. So I think very few proposals actually say that college athletes should just get paid straight up like a salary. But the main point of contention, which I very much agree with, is that if you're a phenomenal college athlete, you should be able to work at the local sandwich shop for $50,000 as like a signing bonus or more. Or you should be able to get paid a ton of money to run a youth sports camp in the summer. And the reason I say that is because there is precedent in any other area of scholarship. So if you get a scholarship to the music school, you can still do gigs on the weekend and get paid for them. If you get an academic scholarship, you can make a ton of money tutoring other kids. So that to me is like you have a special skill. It's your likeness. You can use it to make money. They don't let athletes do this. And Steve, what you told me is that that's because like, let's say that there's a booster that owns like a bunch of car dealerships. Well, instead of paying money to the school, he would just pay money to the star and be like, hey, here's $2 million. Come to my car dealership and sign autographs once a week. And then the school would get pissed because they feel like they don't have the control. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, we're all kind of projecting on this, but that's how I kind of would see it, right? Is if if you don't need to go through the middleman, why go through them, you know? I mean, it's, it's, you could see, I could see the same again, depending on rules, but I could see the same in the sense that a lot of the facilities and all the, you know, the slides and golf, putt, putt, golf and bowling alleys and some of these big, you know, college football, you know, uh, sporting areas, I guess, is for recruiting, right? Yeah, totally. But in the NCAA is onto this because during the tournament, I keep seeing this ad where it's like only 2% or 1% of NCAA players continue playing their sports. And then they show like three people and they're like such and such law firm, such and such cardiologist, such and such veteran and assistant athletic director. And I'm like, all right, you give me three people. Like I want to see the hard facts on where athletes that didn't go pro end up versus the general student population. And more acutely, where athletes that almost went pro but didn't go pro end up or athletes that were going to go pro but got injured because those are the people that would benefit the most from getting paid because they have the, the, the their likeness is worth the most money. So, yeah, I mean, the more that we see that this is such a business and, you know, not to bring, well, I guess, yeah, I am going to bring race into it. Watching that movie and just seeing like a whole bunch of super rich majority white people paying so much money for their kids to get into the school And then all these black kids, many of which are from the hood, not getting paid in the same freaking business. It just makes my skin boil. 
you know, it's there's there's a ton of money going around, but it doesn't go to the people who probably do the actual work and deserve it. Although in the scandal, the guy that was taking the ACT for everyone got paid like ten thousand dollars a test, so he got paid. You know, I think like some white guy that was like a former attorney went to an Ivy League school himself, like a mathematician. So, yep. <laughs> that's you know maybe that's that's the gig that's the job for you um and as people know like anyone that knows us or that knows me at all like i actually i think money is a terrible thing to just chase i think consumerism's jacked up i think capitalism's got its fair share of problems so believe you me i wish we could live in like this idealistic world where kids got an education and it was honorable to represent your school but we don't live in that world and pretending that we do only does a disservice to the kids yeah. I mean, it's, it's tricky. I mean, I, th- I think in all honesty, if I think about it, I think that the major sports or the sports like football, basketball, etc., should almost, they should almost be treated as this minor professional minor league. And then the sports that, you know, where you can't make tons of revenue off of like you athletes should still be allowed to if you know you sure you want to get a shoe deal because you're like the best you know mile runner great or if you're a you know if you're a kid who has a youtube account but also is a college sailor or whatever it is you should be sailing videos man there's probably a niche world of a million people that love sailing monetize exactly like monetize them but like the, the the key there is we just you can still have college athletics, but it's probably more of for those sports, the D three model, which is fine. Yes. And I think that that would be a lot more, um, a lot more intellectually honest to what is actually happening because the football programs and and in many schools, the basketball programs are, are making a ton of money and subsidizing other parts of the schools, but they're also bringing in all this money for the schools and their endowments are so freaking big I remember like Harvard, like, or maybe it wasn't, no, it wasn't Harvard. Maybe it was Brown. I, it was one of the, the Ivies, like, wasn't going to refund kids tuition when they canceled class for COVID. But their endowment in the same article, it's like, this school sits on an endowment of $2.4 billion. And it's like, what's the money for? And then the argument is like, well, when people give money, they put constraints on it. It's like, well, guess what? There's a once in a generation pandemic kids whose parents saved up so that they could pay $50,000 a year to go to this school are going to go broke. And you're worried about like, you know, the symphony hall that you were going to build. This is the stuff that just make irks me about super rich people. And we're, we're upper middle class, but I'm talking about like the kind of people that can fund symphony halls and then say that, no, you can't give the money to the poor kids whose school's canceled because it needs to be for my symphony hall. So this is the problem I have as well in the sense that why in the world do we function off a donation donor model that puts such constraints on on things? You know what I mean? That's like like the whole system of like having these huge endowments that you that can't use for anything. You can't use Well no, but they're used for prestige because that's why people pay. So what you get out of the endowment is like a fancy new building, but you don't get to have 200 more students or you don't get to bring on a really good professor. Right. 
that's what I that's what I mean. It's like why why in the world isn't this used for it's something? The same reason we have golf courses. The same reason we have golf courses. Yeah, because super rich people. That's Malcolm Gladwell did a phenomenal podcast on yeah, the amount of yeah. green space that is used for golf courses, even though, you know, most people now that used to golf ride fancy bikes instead, but we still have all these golf courses. You know, the best part, the only, or I should say, one of the only good things about the pandemic, the golf courses were closed and you could run on them because no one cared for a little bit. Oh, Just that must have been nice. So, um, I agree. Um, yeah, I was going to take my dog walking on the golf course, but there were like 48 signs that said no dogs. So, did, did, and I'm in North Carolina. I didn't want to get shot. <laughs> But it is, it's so, you know, breaking, coming back to that, it's so backwards that like you have this donor based model that is based on prestige, right? That then you can't use for things that actually make, you know, the experience or what colleges were created for learning. A la education. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can't use it for that. Yeah. And, just, and, and here's, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm it's just it's just kind of mind blowing on we've we've lost our priorities to a high degree. Yeah, but then here's the problem. So I hear all this and I'm like, all right, well, clearly college like the college system is broken. So it's like ripe for disruption. And then I see all the tech bros with their new models for disrupting college. And about the only thing worse than college are like 90% of these models for disrupting college, which rely on like AI software programs that are going to, you know, have robots eventually teaching the classes and there's going to be no fixed costs and yada, 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 and completely taking the human element out of it. So both the actual college is broken, but then all the proposals I see to disrupt them are, and I'm very skeptical of um, like technology solutions that prove panaceas because we've seen that when you take the human element out of many things, a la social media, you tend it tends to do more harm than good, or at least equal harm and good, or has all these unintended consequences. So I don't think the like free for all, we are going to open you know all these schools up and just do it online is going to be the same value either. I think kind of like what you need is like the idealistic college, which is like the school that maybe you get to this by being more honest and saying, hey, sports are a business, we're going to run it like a business. And the school itself, we're going to run like an actual school and we're going to allow kids in because they got the grades to come in or they have whatever, you know, standard is decided upon. Um, so, yeah, that's I don't know. That's where I'm at here with this. All right. Let, let's try and bring things back a little bit. We started off with this movie, which was on the college ad- admission scandal. Unless you went to community college, we probably offended you. So we apologize for that. But let's let's kind of refocus on, okay, we've got all these major issues, right? We've got this admissions. We've got this prestige. We've got this endowment thing we just talked about. We've got the wrong incentives a lot of times for college. What in the world do we do? How do we realign, I don't know, the system or what, what advice should we give parents or those guiding young kids for college? Well, I'll, I'll start on the, we probably offended you spot. And I think what became clear to me in this is it's not that elite colleges are bad. 
It's that elite colleges are bad when they're hijacked for business purposes. So if those Ivy League schools were still places that rewarded the purest intellect and encouraged that, then they'd be great. But if they become simply prestige kind of um, like charms that you wear in a necklace, or in this case, literal degrees that you hang on your wall, then, and that's the driving force, then I do think that they become problematic. So I think part of it is not thinking about college as a luxury brand, but thinking about college as an education. I think something else that I don't know how you get there, but it would be a cultural shift is realizing that the differences between schools are not as great as we think in making that a part of hiring decisions. Yeah. And the research bears that out. If you look at it, the difference in terms of earnings between those who, let's say, went to Ivy League or could get in, but chose to go, go to a public state school isn't isn't there is no difference. There was a very large study in the early 2000s that looked at 30 years of data. So it bears it out. It's largely a perception issue. And I, I think that, you know, part of it is on all of us to kind of get rid of that perception to a degree when we're making hiring decisions or making decisions uh, that, you know, impact, you know, um, jobs and all that good stuff. Yeah. And, and then from a parenting standpoint, I think it's the same thing is to like do what you can to be aware of it. There's such a pull to get caught up in this keeping up with the Joneses as it relates to education and realizing that it's not good for you as a parent. It's certainly not good for your kid and it's not good for society. So you can opt out of that game. Now it's really hard to opt out of that game, but you can. Yeah. It's and the status anxiety felt by parents, you know, of saying your kid got into A, B and C or got scholarships at X, Y, Z is really pulling. But what happens is that anxiety gets transferred on to the, the student, the kid, right? And that's why you have, again, very smart kids who a lot of times develop like anxiety and mental health issues around playing the game to try and get into colleges or universities um, that have prestige. And I think if we can fight back on that a bit, we're looking at creating a healthier environment and we can also, if if I was a parent, you know, Brad, you are, um, but maybe you'll take this advice. I would say that your goal is to figure out how to encourage and create that love of learning towards some specific or some area. And if you do that, like regardless of where you go to college, you can carry that through and you're going to learn what you need to learn to uh, to be good at whatever work you choose to be good at. Yeah, I think so. And again, like that, that prestige is, um, it's a real factor. I remember for graduate school, I got, um, and this is, there's no way to do this without a humble brag. So I'm just going to do it. I got full ride scholarships for graduate school to Harvard and University of Michigan and Yale. And I distinctly remember being like, I want to go to Michigan. That's where my girlfriend is. And I had a really good undergrad experience and I love Ann Arbor. And my parents were like, well, like you should at least visit Harvard and Yale. Like you shouldn't just like close the door that early. 
And by then I was already graduate school. I'd already worked out in the world for a little. So I guess like I had the confidence to stand up to my parents. I'm like, nope, like why would I visit if there's no way I'm going to go there? Like, I don't want to go into politics. I distinctly remember having this conversation. I was at Florida at my grandma's. I'm like, I don't want to be a senator. I certainly don't want to be president. So why would I go to one of these schools? But I love my girlfriend and I really love Ann Arbor. And eventually they repented and that was it. And I went to Michigan and now I'm married to my then girlfriend and I'm thrilled because I get to spend my time doing this podcast with you. And if I would have gone to one of those, you know, fancy Ivy League schools, maybe I would have gotten on a different path. Um, so because I went to Michigan and because you transferred from Rice to UH, um, we don't have the big endowments, which is why we need your support on Patreon. So if you like the show and you like our kind of no bullshit um Hopefully also compassionate, but just trying to be honest take on these issues that are at times hard to talk about in the culture. Um, please head over to www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. We've got all kinds of neat offers. We've got signed books. We've got a live book club with author discussions. We've got virtual quarterly mastermind group that is live. We've got ebooks. Um, it's a really great value and you help our endowment. Um, we have no side door. We have no back door. We just have five to $20 Patreon options. I, I love it. I love it. So, um, hopefully we haven't driven off all of our Ivy league listeners or prestigious or any college listeners. We'll call it that. Um, our goal in this, in these conversations is to have honest and straightforward conversations led by data and research, which we've looked into, but also our experiences. And obviously our experiences are going to differ from everybody else. But the more we can have these conversations, I think the better we are and ignoring, you know, some of the issues, regardless of if those issues are from places that we like and support or not, I think does everybody a disservice. So hopefully, you know, you took something away from this we'll call it this honest rant and if we offended we are sorry but you know come back and and listen and hopefully and i don't think we offended right anyone now. steve because i know that individuals that like the growth eq that went to ivy league schools they are deep thinkers they were at those schools for the right reasons surely and they're probably even more pissed than we are when they hear stories of um back inside door uh, fancy people coming in when they just want to be studying the classics, writing mathematical proofs. We've got a few chess masters um, that support us. I mean, those those guys and gals, they're going to Ivy League schools for the right reasons because they're fucking chess masters. So this isn't against Ivy League schools. We probably were a little too harsh. This is again, and we're not just trying to cover ass though. If you took the side door, or the back door, you're probably not going to like our take on things because we are not a side door or back door program here. <laughs> you know, I think it comes down. if I was going to summarize this, it comes down to one of our tenants that we talked about a lot in the passion paradox, which is um, mastery. You know, if you're about mastery, then 
you know, you probably got what you needed out of Ivy League school or a state school or a community college or a trade school, whatever, wherever you went, because mastery is the name of the game. And if you're there, you're going to if you're on that path, you're going to do the work to figure out how to get better at, at whatever it is you're interested in. Yeah, mastery's on my mind a lot. This is um, this is this is definitely a, a quick segue, but I recently met two people that um, I've obviously struck interesting relationships with. Um, and, and I'll say friendships. One is a guy that's doing our landscaping right now. And another is our neighbor. And they both had corporate jobs and they both quit. And the guy that's doing our landscaping was the former VP at a big bank. And he's like this jacked up dude. And he's like, you know, you know, Southern through and through, you know, Brad, I got sick of the corporate bullshit. I've always had a green thumb. I know I look like a tough guy, but I love gardening. So now I'm just doing landscaping. I downsized my house. I upsized my truck because now I need a big pickup truck to pull the stuff, but I'm happier. So that's right. And then a guy in our neighborhood quit his job to start building houses. And he builds two homes a year. Um, And that's like what he does. So whatever your path of mastery is, um, get on it and, and try not to do too many things just because they're means to a desired end because life is too short. And if you get caught up in that cycle, you might find yourself offering a rowing coach, uh, $50 million to present a Photoshopped picture of your son or daughter for a spot on the team. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.